uh, was made in 1677 in the fires of controversy and turmoil and persecution among the Baptists. And so they kept quiet uh, about uh, this confession until 1689 when William and Mary uh, took on the scene and the act of toleration occurred and the, the churches got together and they uh, officially signed uh, this confession uh, together as churches. So what we're going to do is uh, we've been looking at the confession. Uh, Pastor Nathan has been going over it. And maybe just a recap uh, on the confession. We're going to be going through the confession for the better part of this next year. And as we do, uh, I want you to think of it in, in many ways as like a mini systematic theology. And so it expresses our confession of faith in writing. And just to go through some of the things that Nathan highlighted and described, is it defines what we believe, it descri- describes uh, why we believe it, it, it identifies us in our community of faith, the confession serves uh, to unite us together uh, under one banner, if you will, uh, to uh, also connect us with both the present uh, churches, but also past churches uh, going back even to uh, the big days of Christ himself. And thinking about the, the second London Confession, uh, one of the things it serves to do for the church is it provides doctrinal boundaries. Okay? It, if, if I say to you, I believe in the second London Baptist Confession, and I subscribe to it, and if I, and if I tell you that, you would understand, uh, Lord willing, when we get through this study, all the different things that that means about me and the, and the things that I believe about God, the things about, I believe about the Scripture, the things that I believe about salvation and the order of salvation and the covenant and all these different things. And so it serves as a, a guideline or a boundary, if you will, uh, to not only protect us from falsehood and error, but, but to unite us together. It gives us a theological identity, uh, not only as a local church, but also as a standard of teaching and preaching as you, uh, what the things that you can expect from us as elders and pastors is that we are going to teach in line with the confession. And if we teach something uh, erroneous or off from that, uh, we can talk and, uh, and we should talk in light of that. But it also serves uh, as we hold to the second London Baptist to preserve and to pass down our faith uh, in a robust way, uh, in a way that's rich and full and very specific and detailed. And so one of the things that, uh, just kind of a quick overview of the London Baptist Confession, if you wanted to break it up into maybe four parts, uh, the first six chapters lay the foundation work for the confession. They talk about all the first principles, talks about uh, scripture, it talks about the doctrine of God, it talks about uh, God's decree. It talks about creation, providence, all those things, and the fall of man. And then chapter 7 through 20 speaks of God's covenant. And you think of uh, chapter 7 through 20, that's a lot of chapters. Uh, but it identifies salvation. It identifies how God uh, interacts and relates to us covenantally. And then we'll touch on uh, Christian liberty, chapters 21 through 30. Some of these chapters may get more attention than the rest. Uh, Today's chapter is going to be split up into two parts. And so we're going to be looking at paragraphs 1 through 3 today. Um, And so some of the chapters will receive more attention than than the rest. 
And then lastly, we'll conclude looking at chapters uh, 31 and 32 over last things. Uh, So today in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. And these particular paragraphs, uh, what we're going to see today is the necessity of the Scriptures. That is, why do we need the Scriptures? Why is it that we must have those uh, for redemption? Secondly, we're going to look at the identity of the Scriptures and the inspiration of Scriptures. And lastly, we're going to look at the Apocrypha. And we're going to look how the Apocrypha is specifically excluded uh, in, the can, um, in, in the Confession. Uh, our particular Baptist forefathers uh, described that the Apocrypha um, is not authoritative, uh, it is not of divine origin, it is not God-breathed, and we'll talk more about that when we get there uh, in, in a few minutes. And so, when, uh, the first thing we want to look at, we'll just look at what does the Confession say. And so, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 1, it starts out and it says, and I've highlighted this little section, if you can read it, it says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and faith and obedience. So as as we think about uh, this beginning statement, one of the things, if you're familiar with the Westminster uh, Confession, One of the things you're going to notice and understand is that both the Westminster Confession and the Savoy, uh, they track uh, almost word for word and much through the Confession. But this particular first part of the first sentence of chapter 1, paragraph 1, the Baptists inserted this right at the beginning. And so when you think about uh, systematic theologies, many in our modern day, they begin with the doctrine of God, like who is God? Uh, talk about God's being and that sort of thing. But the confession, it begins in chapter 1. It's the Holy Scriptures. So this is one of the things that our uh, Baptist forefathers included. Is the, this first statement says, The Holy Scripture is the only, and this word only, it, it modifies sufficient and certain and infallible. It is the only sufficient. We can say it's the only certain. It is the only infallible rule of all saving knowledge. So the idea is that Scripture, uh, if you wanted to take out those modifiers, it would be Scripture is the rule. It is the rule for uh, our, our saving knowledge, for our faith, and for our obedience. So this rule, the idea is that the Scriptures... The Holy Scriptures uh, are the test. It is the standard. It is the highest authority. It is the criteria upon which this confession rests. And this is not really different uh, than the Westminster Confession. Because if you look at the Westminster Catechism, they use a lot of this exact same language uh, in in their uh, catechism. And so the Baptists were just uh, front-loading, if you will, Uh, this first chapter on uh, the scriptures with this idea of putting the scriptures at the highest possible uh, point of authority and rule. It is the rule. Notice that the rule is, um, it is the only sufficient, meaning it is full, it is complete. Uh, We don't need things outside of scripture. It is uh, sure, 
when you think about uh, the Scriptures, okay, it is trustworthy. The Scriptures are reliable. The Scriptures are unfailing. I like the word indubitable. Uh, They don't fail. And notice, the confession here is talking about the Scriptures and not the confession itself. Mark, do you have a question? Yeah, and many systematic theologies begin with that because you begin with the supreme being. Uh, But in our confession, uh, in one sense, it's derivative from the scriptures. And so, uh, again, I I noted that it it stands upon not only the uh, Westminster Confession, but also the Savoy Declaration in that the Westminster starts uh, with this word uh, after the the bold there. The Westminster starts with, although the light of nature... And the works of creation and providence do manifest the goodness and wisdom of God. And basically, uh, the Westminster basically starts with general revelation and then goes to special revelation. And one of the things that the Baptists wanted to do amidst the controversy of the 1600s, they didn't want to be considered radical or um, different than orthodoxy among the Presbyterians or those in the Congregationalists. And so uh, they took a lot of the language from the Westminster and they said, we're Christian just like you. You know, we hold to what you hold to. And they didn't want to be radical. And I think that's why they also adopted uh, beginning with the scriptures here uh, as as far as the starting point. Uh, But not to get too far off on a a trail on that. But as as the Holy Scripture, it's it's the rule. It's a standard. It is that which uh, all disputes are brought to, and it is not only sufficient, that is, we don't need anything else. In the Scriptures, we have the whole counsel of God. It is literally God's Word to us. And I want you to think about the Scriptures in that way. As you hear the Scriptures proclaimed later today, the Scriptures are certain and they're sufficient. They're sufficient for all Uh, that God wants us and has declared to us about himself, about our world, about salvation, and about what is to come. About even where we have come from. And so as the scriptures, they're the only sufficient. Uh, The next modifier is the only certain. Uh, And this idea is, again, it's just sure, it's trustworthy. Uh, You you could even, uh, some, uh, um, what's the word? Authors or uh, authors back in this time would use this word certain uh, as, a, as a word for like inerrant uh, that we would say today. It is inerrant. That is that the scriptures are certain in that they are a faithful record of what God has declared and that it, it, it bolsters up uh, our understanding of the word of God in that uh, what God has given us, we can be sure and certain that what is in the Word is definitely God's Word. It's a faithful record. 
And uh, the framers of this confession uh, heaped on the next word, uh, which I think is the only word that the Baptists began to use of a document uh, in light of God's word, calling the Bible infallible. That the word of God is infallible. And the idea is that it cannot err. It is impossible for God's holy word to err. And so they added this word here that it is infallible. It's the infallible rule. And notice what this is for. What is the infallible rule for? Okay, it says it is of all saving knowledge. Okay, the idea is divine knowledge from God. It is of all saving knowledge. It is the only way that we can know of our Savior. It is uh, the only way that we can know that uh, we have a need, uh, a sin problem, a worship problem uh, before God. And so as it is um, sufficient, it's certain, it's infallible, it is for saving knowledge, it is for faith that objectively or subjectively you are to believe and trust in the Scriptures, to believe and trust in what God has said and to obey. And it, uh, so in, in lighting that... Uh, Thinking of the necessity of the scriptures, the framers of the confession uh, follow up, like I said, the Westminster, and notice what they say next. They highlight general revelation, or what is sometimes ter- termed as natural revelation. Let me, let me read it here. It says, although the light of nature, it says the works of creation and providence, they do so far manifest. The goodness, wisdom, the power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Now this was to combat not only the Arminians in the day, um, but I believe also uh, the, the Quakers as they had an idea that, uh, and I've even heard a man say this, even in my day, I was trying to help a man understand the scriptures, and he said, I asked him if he went to church, and uh, he said, no, I don't go to church, I do my church outside on Sundays, I go outside and I look at the trees, and I just, I glory in God, (laughs) and uh, we started talking more about that, and about how natural revelation is insufficient. To tell us about God's being, it is insufficient to tell us, I'm sorry, not about his being, but it's insufficient to tell us about salvation, about redemption. Uh, It is sufficient and it is good for, uh, as the confession says, it manifests the goodness of God. It manifests the wisdom of God. It manifests uh, the power of God. Could I have someone uh, maybe turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans? Uh, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Would someone read verses 19 and 20 out of Romans chapter 1? Really loud. Or loudly. <laughs> Sam. I'm, oh, oh, go ahead. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For 
nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, the idea of uh, God revealing himself uh, in a general way, and in what we would say natural revelation or general revelation. What is natural revelation good for? What does it do positively? According to what Sam just read. Yeah. So in, in, it displays his goodness, it displays his wisdom, it displays his power. So all of creation, you go out and you look at the trees, you look at the grass, these things, these beings, these things that we see in creation, they are not of themselves. God has made them. And by virtue of their being, they declare His glory. They declare His order. They declare His majesty. Like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. So they manifest God's goodness and His wisdom and His power. I noted up on the screen that the light of nature is also found in those other chapters in the Scriptures. I mean, in the, the London Baptist Confession. In chapter uh, 1, verse 6, in chapter 10, paragraph 4, uh, chapter 20, paragraph 2, and chapter 22, paragraph 1, also speaks about the light of nature and the idea that the, the framers of the confession were getting to is this idea of general revelation, um, natural revelation. And so as we think about natural revelation as good, uh, but the confession says that it is insufficient. Uh, it is not saving in any kind of way, even as Sam just read at the very end of Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says that, Ever since the creation of the world, ever since the very beginning of creation, it says in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse, that in, in the things that have been created and the things that have been made, they are insufficient for salvation and to lead us to salvation. So here it says it leaves men inexcusable and it says yet they're not sufficient to give the knowledge of God. Beloved, we should not, uh, this should encourage us not to leave our friends and neighbors um, merely with the testimony of creation, the testimony of God's creation around them, but to actually proclaim to our neighbors and to our friends not only who God is, but how has He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures and their need for Him uh, and for the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Because it's the Scriptures that give us the saving knowledge of God. It is the one that tells us uh, how does grace come our way. It says, believe by faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll be saved. Trusting in Christ. And not by what you do. The confession goes on in paragraph one, and it highlights it goes from general revelation, which is insufficient, uh, to special revelation, or the idea of God revealing Himself uh, to not only His people, but also 
uh, specifically to the Israelites. If you want to turn in the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 uh, echoes this part of the confession. I'm sorry, the confession echoes Hebrews chapter 1. I'll say it the right way here. Sorry about that. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then it, it makes a contrast between all the ways that God has spoken and the contrast uh, in verse 2, it says, but in these last days, in these New Testament days, this era, he says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So the book of Hebrews, uh, they're, they're taking that same language here in the confession. It says, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself. So God has revealed Himself in visions and in dreams. God has revealed Himself to prophets. God has revealed Himself uh, to Adam and Eve. God revealed Himself to Abraham. God revealed Himself to Moses uh, in a lot of different ways. But it says, not only declare His will to His church, but it says afterward, it says, for the better preserving and the propagating of the truth, God could have continued to reveal Himself as He did uh, before the inscripturation of His Word. Uh, but he chose, and they're highlighting here, the better preserving and the propagating of the truth, that the establishment and the comfort of the church uh, would, would stand against the corruption of the flesh. That is, the weakness of flesh, the sinfulness of flesh, the malice of Satan in the world, and to commit the same holy unto writing. It says, uh, <clears throat> which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary. The former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. That is, in the way that God used to reveal himself has ceased, and that we have God's sufficient and authoritative word from him uh, that he has given to us. And it says that the church is what? Is a pillar and the buttress of the, of the truth. The church is. And that God has spoken. And it, uh, would someone turn, if you would, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2. Could I have someone read that for me? Very loudly. All right, speaking about the church, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself is the cornerstone. And so the very foundation of the church itself is Jesus Christ, who's come in the flesh, he has testified to who he is, and he sent out his apostles, those with his authority, uh, to teach and to preach uh, in light of uh, the Great Commission. And... Uh, that is the foundation uh, for the church, is Christ himself and the apostles. <clears throat> Could I have someone read uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 14, 15, and 16.
Right, the Apostle Paul is writing his young protege, Timothy, and he reminds him, you have been taught the scriptures from childhood, as we know from his mother and grandmother. He's been acquainted with the sacred writings and scriptures. And then he says, these are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures. Now, Timothy had what? The Old Testament. That was uh, sufficient to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so as, as we look at the sufficiency of the scriptures, as we look at them being uh, identified here as all scripture is breathed out by God, that his origin is from God. The scriptures are from God. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 27, the Apostle Paul, as he is writing this uh, young little church in Thessalonica, uh, only really months old, he says this to the brothers there. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord. That is a high and lofty command of the Apostle. I put you under oath before the Lord, he says, to have this letter, that is 1 Thessalonians, have this letter read to all the brothers. The Apostle Paul encourages the church in Colossae, he says, uh, when you get the letter from Laodicea, you read it, and you have them read this letter from uh, Colossae, and you have them read it together. And uh, one of the interesting things to note about that is, we don't have a letter from Laodicea. We don't have that letter. And so that letter, I guess it was sufficient for the time, but the Lord saw fit uh, that we do not have that letter. But God has preserved the Scriptures for us and all that He wanted us to have. He has preserved His Holy Word for us by His power. He has uh, preserved what He wanted the church to have uh, through the ages. Even as you think of uh, what other books of the Bible are mentioned in the Bible, but that we don't have uh, in our day that, that were lost. Can you think of any others? Maccabees. Well, not Maccabees, uh, but I'm thinking of the, the Holy Scriptures, the ones that, that were uh, maybe talked about in the Bible, but that uh, we don't have with us today. Jonathan. Okay. Okay. The one I was thinking of is uh, like the three letters to Corinth. First uh, Corinthians was written, and then there was a second Corinthians written that we don't have. Uh, but uh, so our second Corinthians is really, I guess, third Corinthians. But uh, but it's it is second Corinthians because God saw fit uh, not to preserve that, and He has preserved first and second Corinthians for us. 
and has watched over uh, the uh, promotion and the, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, um, the inscripturation of what he wanted us to have, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, when you think about the necessity of the scriptures, why are the scriptures necessary? Why are they necessary um, for the church? Why are they necessary for us? Karen. Yeah, it, the, and isn't that encouraging when you think of uh, when Peter, having been on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he's writing, he says, we have the more sure word, which you will do well to pay attention as a light, right, shining in the darkness. How, how do we know? Uh, and that gets us to what is scripture? When you think about defining what scripture is, what is, what is scripture? How do you define it? Okay. God's holy word. What else? How else can you describe it in addition to that? God's holy word. The only rule to direct us how we can know and glorify him. Okay. Divine revelation. Okay. Very good, very good, very good. Any others? It's a love letter. What's that? It's a love letter. Okay. It puts God's love on display. Okay. What's that? The way of salvation. The transcript through man that God delivered the knowledge of him to us. Okay. So you mentioned letter, you mentioned transcript. Uh, what I want you to basically say is it is God's word written. Right? It it is it is inscripturated. What is scripture? Scripture is God's word to us. In written form. And I, I say that because uh, in this next section, uh, in chapter 1, paragraph 2, our Reformed Baptist forefathers uh, wanted to identify uh, and give an identity to the scriptures. Now, do we have any that in uh, <clears throat> here that have grown up Roman Catholic? Okay, a few in here. Okay. How does the Roman Catholic Church describe or define God's Word? Jason, you want to add to that? Or? The only way interpreted is God's magisterium, which is the, the, the lay person is incapable in their eyes of understanding it and needs to be instructed by the magisterium what the scripture says. Okay. So ultimately, the magisterium is supreme in, in the full authority, right? Because they're the only ones that can interpret it. Jason, did you want to add? You think of the Word of God, how does the Roman Catholic Church just differentiate or describe what that is? Really, the supreme authority. This is, you know, their doctrine is from the Old 
Yes, yes. That's what I wanted to get at is that the Roman Catholic Church sees a, a dual aspect to the Word of God. They see the written Word, yes, uh, which they would probably add the Apocrypha on top of that, which is uh, from the Council of Trent. But they would also say that the Word of God is the oral tradition passed down. And so they, they differentiate between, uh, with, sometimes they'll use the Word of God, uh, but what they mean is the oral tradition passed down. And so uh, they, there's a, a dual meaning uh, that the Roman Catholics will hold to when they say the word of God. Uh, and that's why here in, in the scriptures, uh, we're going to look at the identity and the inspiration of the scripture in the confession. And under paragraph two, it says under the name of Holy Scripture. And then it says, or the word of God written. Okay. Again, differentiating between uh, the Roman Catholics. And he says, now are contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. And if you would probably turn in the front of your Bible uh, into the, uh, the contents, as it has from Genesis to Revelation, uh, the confession lists out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the men that were forming the confession wanted every single book to be listed. So there was no discrepancy on what they were saying is the Holy Scriptures. And so they actually identify from Genesis to Revelation uh, with the Old and New Testament that we would say are the proper and correct books of the Scriptures. Uh, And he goes on to say, all of which are given by inspiration of God. Again, using this word to be the rule of of faith, and the rule of life. Um, anybody want to add anything to that on the, on the paragraph two, on the identity of the Scriptures? Vic? church selected uh, what books were going to be in the canon, uh, but they, they recognized them as the Word of God having uh, uh, come down uh, from the apostles themselves. Uh, they, yeah, that's a really huge point, mm-hmm. because the Roman Catholic position was, hey, we, we determined what books were in the Bible and what books weren't. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the church is the one who is over the uh, but the reformers argued and recognized, no, the church came together and recognized what was clearly inspired. You hear that word he's using there? Recognize. Yeah, go ahead. Recognize. Didn't determine. Like the church doesn't determine what is the word of God. The church did come together to recognize what was the word of God. Mm-hmm. And to affirm that. Jason. It's also worth noting, I've talked to a few people that maybe grew up in a church and then, 
us understanding how God's word came to be. Mm. And they see these different English translations and they start picking apart things and they don't understand that we're talking about scriptures we're, we're ultimately coming back to the original autographs, mm. which we technically don't have, but we can have 99.9% confidence because of the manuscripts and the you know, textual criticism of the study that's gone into what we have today that you know, there may be a word or two plus or minus, but no theology is challenged. What we have, you know, we can stand confident in, but as copies and copies and copies remain, you know, that's why, like, I think James might have a couple extra verses in another, but that in no way invalidates the supreme authority or inerrancy. I think those those questions are they seem problematic for others. It's, it's worth just knowing that brief history. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, really thankful to think of the the testimony of God's word and the thousands and thousands of manuscripts uh, that we have to cross-reference uh, the scriptures from the different um, what's called the family of manuscripts, whether it's uh, um, the different schools that were the scribes that were writing them all out. They can take a lot of those manuscripts and cross-reference them uh, to understand. Um, Maybe when a scribe might have added something in the, in, the, in, the, in the side to make a reference point and then later it was added in, they can go through and, and check all those things. But that is kind of uh, beyond our scope for today uh, as, as far as talking about that. But they wanted to identify, they wanted to put in the confession, here is what we are saying is the scriptures. And the point is uh, because um, paragraph number three, one of the things that they wanted to do was to particularly exclude the Apocrypha. And they, they don't really, if you notice here, I'm going I'm to read this in paragraph 3, they don't really give any, um, they don't try to defend what they're saying here. They're just claiming, it says, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon, uh, they're no part of the rule of Scripture, and therefore they are no authority to the church of God or to any otherwise approved or made use of other than human writings. And <clears throat> when you think of, of the Apocrypha, does anyone know any of the books uh, from the Apocrypha? Tobit? Tobit? Yep. Ecclesiasticus? Yep. Okay, the book of Enoch. Yeah, <laughs> yes, who said that? Bell and the dragon. Yeah, all right. What's that? Well, there's also, yeah, Daniel. Yeah, and Bell, yep. And then there's the three friends. You know, you've heard of them. But uh, yeah, so uh, it is, there, there's, maybe you, you have heard of first and second Maccabees uh, or Judith or some other ones. Uh, but the point is that the, uh, our Baptist forefathers are saying these scriptures um, were not held to be authoritative by the Jews and that they are not part of the Old Testament canon. Um, we could talk about how they were involved in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Holy Scriptures of the Hebrew uh, back in, I think, 200 B.C. Uh, or 160 B.C. Uh, when that was written. And Talk about how the Roman Catholic Church brought those over, uh, I guess, through Jerome and the Latin Vulgate. Uh, but we're really out of time to do that. But the idea is that um, they, wanted, they wanted 
they wanted to state clearly that the Apocrypha is not of uh, divine inspiration. It doesn't carry any weight of authority. It may be uh, good as far as reading it as a human writing, uh, but it carries no authority and it is not uh, to be a rule of scripture or to be a rule for faith and life or anything like that. Jason. I don't know. Do you know the short version of why they clung so hard to that? Is it because they used some proof text to push back on the reformers? Or? Oh, oh, as far as the arguments for the Roman Catholic Church that they would make? Why is that so important to them? Because their, their collective book is being challenged? Well, that's uh, where they get a lot of like prayers to the dead or purgatory. Uh, and there, 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 a lot of different views or things that they would hold to uh, come from uh, from that. But I think ultimately, uh, in 1546, the Council of Trent, uh, as far as the Counter Reformation, um, they were demanding that these things uh, were scripture and for uh, that they were uh, held on the same level, the same authority as what we would say the scriptures are. But, uh, but. Both the Westminster Confession and the Baptists were saying, no, these, some of these things, I mean, you go, go read, you know, Bell and the Dragon, <laughs> so it's, uh, some fanciful stories uh, that um, in one sense discredit themselves as you read them and say, uh, this doesn't have anything to do, um, um, like, in, like in Tobit, uh, I think it's in uh, chapter 12 of Tobit, it talks about, uh, I think it talks about Raphael being a, like a mediator for the prayers of the people on earth. And it's like, well, no, 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 we have one mediator. We have Christ. Not, not Raphael or some angel. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Reformers, that's, I, that's why I think they don't even really write anything. Oh, here's all of our reasons why we don't believe in saying, No, these things, these things are known and understood that uh, this is not authoritative. It is not of Scripture. And... Uh, yeah, very well. Yeah, the Roman Catholics support a lot of their doctrines from there as well. Uh, the Reformers were looking to say these things contradict other scripture mm-hmm. clearly, and uh, the Jews themselves did not consider them as inspired. Mm-hmm. The New Testament doesn't quote them as inspired, treat them as inspired like it does the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And so there are very useful writings of men, like you, 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 you can read even the, the Mac- Maccabees and understand the Maccabean period. And understand what's going on in the angle. It's very helpful mm-hmm. historically, but uh, as far as uh, infallible, they, contra- they, they contradict other scriptures. Yeah, and because of that, uh, the reformers rejected them. So, like, thinking about Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus says, um, All of Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about me. But he didn't say, And first Maccabees, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't include any of the Apocrypha. He, he basically uses the Jewish uh, tradition, traditional understanding of what the, uh, the Hebrew canon is, the Law of Moses, the Writings, and the Prophets. And um, anyway, just one example there from Christ. Um, we are out of time, though. Um, we'll take some more questions uh, this next week, and we'll finish the rest of chapter 1 uh, this next week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given gifted men through time, uh, Lord, to not only uh, better explain some of the the scriptures and and forming creeds and confessions, uh, Lord, understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, Lord, helping us to understand you better. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these men. Lord, we know that these writings are not inspired. Uh, They are not God-breathed. 
Uh, but as a summary of the Scriptures and what we do believe, Lord, I pray that it would help, uh, be helpful to us and disciple us as be a tool that we can use uh, to better understand and sharpen one another and to understand what we believe and why we believe it, Father. Lord, thank you for this morning. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless our time uh, in your word this morning as we worship you gathered as your body. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.